Hi, I'm Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Again, to Please Speak Freely. I'm your host, Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits. This second episode of Please Speak Freely is sponsored by the Schools Out Washington Bridge Conference, which will be in Seattle, Washington on October 17th and 18th. We'll be there and we hope to see you there too. In this episode of Please Speak Freely, I got a chance to talk to Earl Martin Phelan, who's the founder of Bell and Summer Advantage and the CEO of Reach Out and Read. I think Earl and I had a pretty interesting conversation about his path and his work and his views on issues that are important to the field today, including who's an educator and who gets to call themselves an educator and how programs and organizations represent their work, the importance in in his work, particularly at Bell, of measuring outcomes and measuring results, and a little bit about how after-school programs can be a form of working towards social justice. So uh, without further ado... Here we go. I'm here in Charlestown, Massachusetts with the uh, president and CEO of uh, Reach Out and Read. Did I get your title right? Yeah, president correct. And CEO? Okay, president and CEO of Reach Out and Read, Earl Phelan, um, here on Please Speak Freely. And we were just discussing uh, uh, the, the founding of Bell, B- Building Educated Leaders for Life. That's correct. Learners for Life. No, Leaders, leaders. for Life. Yeah. Building Educated Leaders for Life, um, one of the organizations that Earl has founded over the years. Um, and you were telling me that it was a... It was a you at the beginning sort of co-founded it with a with a friend and and fellow Harvard Law yep. student, best friend Andrew Carter. Yeah, Andrew Carter, and he went on to to work in as a professional attorney, professional attorney, and now is a very young judge, which uh-huh. is pretty impressive. Oh wow, yeah, that's yeah, great. pretty impressive. So, and you went from Harvard Law into working in youth development and education. That's right. That's right. And how did, how did that happen? I mean, my path was to law school. I wanted to get involved in uh, law because I wanted to. I thought I wanted to be the mayor of a city. And I wanted to be the mayor to get involved in social justice. Mm-hmm. And so when I volunteered, um, and when I started volunteering, I was like, wow, you know what? Educating children is pretty powerful, and what a great path to social justice. So different than the mayoral path, but right. certainly one that I found uh, probably really rewarding. How did you, how did you feel that the, the work doing after-school programs mm-hmm. and, and, and growing those programs to reach more kids and, yeah. and all of that that you did with Bell. How, how was that social justice work? Well, for me, you know, any time that you change the life of um, uh, or help another person uh, fulfill their potential, you're doing social justice work. Mm-hmm. And so I guess if you use that definition, uh, if you're a good parent and you raise your children right and send them off in the right direction with the right values and beliefs, um, then you're doing social justice work because ultimately it's, it's the interface of human beings that kind of determine what our society is like, what our values are, what things we will and will not do. And so for me it was a notion of, wow, if I can help a child see themselves in a different way, um, believe something that maybe they didn't believe before we connected – then that will absolutely change the direction that they go in mm-hmm. uh, and will change their life, tra- life trajectory. And so for me, it was very clear that um, 
direct service and education. I mean, when you ask people, you know, who's, who is your greatest influencer, mm-hmm. most people are going to remember a teacher or a coach, right? And so for me, those, those positions, even though they're not, as you said, considered social justice maybe positions, they certainly are. But you, you, the, the programs that you founded with Bell working, was it here in Boston? Right? Exactly, right here in, uh, in Boston. It, um, but were they just in, in any neighborhood, or were they in specifically meant to serve kids from economically poor neighborhoods? Yeah, and even more targeted than that, when we started out, uh, our motto was uh, black on black. And it was mm-hmm. taking the negative black on black crime right. and saying black on black, you know, help children help themselves. And that mm-hmm. was really kind of our tagline. So it was black law students from Harvard that founded the organization and working with black children uh, in Cambridge, Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan. And our belief at that point, obviously the organization evolved to now focus on um, serving all, children of all races, uh, where urban and rural, where you know, uh, black and white and, and, and all races. Um, but originally there was just this belief that so many of our children are losing out because they just don't see a path for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when we were in New York, there's 50% unemployment amongst black males. So that's what you see. And I think it's hard for people to say, oh yeah, but I can, yeah, but I can do that. Right. And we know the stats right now are saying, you know, 8% of our kids are going to and graduating from four year colleges. Right. Mm. But yet, of course you can go to college. Well, no, you can't. And so you need to see examples of that. And so a lot of our work in the early programs, and it's so funny, we, we talked to our first class of, uh, of scholars. We just had them back for a, a lunch. This was a few years ago. And they all remembered we taught them the values, um, the, the values of Kwanzaa. And that was part of it because we said, well, part, we want to do the education piece, but anybody can do that. And we know you'll do well in that. But part of it is you have to believe, you have to see yourself as mm-hmm. I'm a good student school is a pathway to something and so it was very interesting that that values piece was some and then obviously the relationships was the was the cornerstone but the values piece stuck with our scholars as something that they remembered uh the most so it was right here in boston it was mostly for black children it was all for black children the first years and um we didn't know anything about um education when we started right so we just love kids and and particularly uh wanted to give back to to our younger brothers and sisters and so in the early days we were very loose and we would go home always very tired and the kids would have had a real great time and so mm-hmm. then we said well it's really weird that we as 26 year olds are are exhausted and feeling frustrated and the kids are are running the show mm-hmm. you know and so uh, we then had a great educator early on, um, and she's from Jamaica, so came up in the British mm-hmm. style of schooling, which is right. more – it's stricter. It's mm-hmm. more regimented. You don't call an adult Earl. You call them Mr. Phelan or you call them Mr. Earl at the very least, and even right. that's a compromise that, that uh, Arlene Hudson, she was the first program person we had, um, didn't like. And she really you know, kind of brought me to the notion that there is no education without structure. Mm-hmm. And you can have fun in structure, you can be loud in structure, you can, but there has to be structure. And then also the, what I saw, which goes to your point, is a lot of our children don't have that structure. And so, um, you know, if we're just speaking frankly, you know, poor parenting is a real issue in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's a real contributor to the educational challenges that we face. And there are a lot of great parents, and I know our parents are working through a whole host of, of challenges, And so, but we need to be honest. And so I actually found that the scholars loved the structure and appreciated that we as adults were laying out that type of, of structure. And again, we had a lot of fun, um, but they also understood that there were lines in which they had to 
to stay because that's how a community uh, operates. So uh, my view started really, really light, but it was interesting to see how then within the structure, uh, you know, you can then just kind of loosen up because everybody understands. You can have, give a look and people know, all right, all right, I've crossed that line of acceptability. And then obviously you want our, you want our scholars to get to the place that they independently, even if there were no adult around, would mm-hmm. do the right thing most of the time. Mm-hmm. Could you talk to us a little bit about how Bell went from being a tutoring program, reaching out to, to African-American youth in specific neighborhoods in yeah. Boston, started by a couple of Harvard Law mm-hmm. students with, with passion, and that was, was it. that was it, right? Yeah. Um, to being, you know, it's, it's now got a national profile. It's yeah. an award-winning organization, got yeah. some sizable grants to mm-hmm. grow and expand, um, led by Tiffany Cooper Guy, who mm-hmm. is, you know, at the helm of that organization and doing, doing a wonderful job as far yeah. as I hear. Um, and you know, that's a, that's a big trajectory yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it happens to come at the time of a lot of growth in the after school field. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that there's some synergies there, yeah. at least around the funding aspect of it. But you know, there's a lot of organizations even here in Boston, there's a lot of after school programs. There's a lot of, um, mom pop tutoring centers sure. that are started by volunteers and, um, you know, they, they may do great work and they stay at that level of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so h- how did bell blow up? I mean, I think it, it started, as you said, small community service. I think the strength of our, our organization, our program, and everything is just our, our love for children and our love for, mm-hmm. uh, as I said, in the early stage, our love for black children. And so when we started off, you know, we'd say, hey, you know, we have this great program. Please support us. And people would say, you shouldn't do academics with children. They've had a full day. Because at that point, really, mentoring was the piece. And then there were other opportunities like the Boys and Girls Club, which is more youth enrichment and and, uh, fun for our scholars, for our children. And so we got a lot of criticism of doing academics. And I said, you know what? I want to see these kids when they're 16, 17, 18. You're not going to see them. Um, So when they're 16, 17, 18, they're going to ask me, why would you have me singing and dancing when I don't know how to read? Mm. And I said, I don't want to, I'm not going to face our kids and have that conversation. They're going to thank me for pushing them and encouraging them and seeing a future for them uh, that uh, they are now realizing. And so that was a tension in their early stages. And so that's one of the reasons where, and I'm sure if I looked broader, we could have found an organization that was as focused on the academic development and then the the self-esteem development. Um, but I felt like there weren't organizations at that point that were focused on, on mm-hmm. that. And so that's what, that's what led us to say, let's start an organization. Once we got started, we would, you know, say, hey, great news. Here are these surveys that say the program worked. And, you know, the educators would laugh at that. And then we said, okay, great news. There were here are report cards that show our children go from a C- minus before they start the program to a B-. minus. It's not perfect, but it's, it's progress. They'd kind of laugh at that. And so we said, you know what, if we're going to make this case that our children can excel, we're going to have to use nationally normed uh, tests that everybody can look at, Iowa Basic Skills, Stanford Diagnostic, and we're going to show you what our kids can do mm. when, they're, when they're supported. That commitment early on to... Uh, measurement and evaluation, and then later when Tiffany Tiffany started as a TA um, in the teacher's assistant in our summer program, and she was so I didn't good. know that yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Wow. so she, and she was so good that she was the first college student because we use certified teachers and supported by a college age teacher's assistant. She was so good that she was the first non certified teacher that we let lead a class. Okay, so she taught a class the following summer, and then she and then we uh, she was graduating from BC, and we brought her on the on the team, and she's obviously uh, just been phenomenal and been a great leader in the organization and her we were really blessed to have her because her focus was research measurement and evaluation Mm -hmm. 
So as we had this intent to do it, now we have this leader who put, put together this world-class evaluation advisory board. And when we did the, our independent evaluation, that was honestly one of the best things. It was really painful to do because it was randomized. Right. So families who had been coming for years, we said, well, if, if you're in the trial group, sorry. You know, so it was really painful to do from a, from a commitment to families perspective. Um, but organization-wide, that was one of the best decisions. We made a lot of good decisions. We made a lot of bad ones. But that was one of the best decisions. And that really was the fuel for our growth. So I, I just want to get back to something you just said a second ago, just to so I make sure I understand it. With the way that the um, the normed study worked with the control group, um, you were saying that families who had been coming for years then could no longer come because they were. Well, in it was the randomized. Group? It was randomized. So we would send off a thousand applicants to the Urban Institute and to mm-hmm. Mathematica, and then they said, "Great, you five hundred get it. You five hundred get in a control group, and you don't get it." But it had to be of the applicants so that it would be – exactly th- – that wouldn't be a, a factor. That That's fact exactly that right. That somebody – a family signed up. To um, have a similar – right, to have right. a similar so family. if they hadn't signed up, then they maybe aren't coming – they're already a little bit behind. That's exactly right. That's exactly wow. right. Wow. That's a really interesting aspect of it. I didn't, I didn't know that that was how that part worked. I mean I know that there's a, when there's a control group, they don't get – the intervention and mm-hmm. then the, the test group right. gets the intervention. Um, yeah, that must have been a difficult process for you. I mean, at the same time, not everybody who applied gets in anyway because of a waiting right. list. Or? That's that's true. But we had, we really pride ourselves on our commitment to our families right. and our partnership with our families. And so our previous rule was, if we have a thousand uh, opportunities. And there are 1,500 families. Mm-hmm. If you've been in the program before, you get to stay. Okay. If you have a sibling, we keep families together, mm-hmm. right, because that creates stress on the family if one's in and another's sure. doing something different. Um, and we kind of had to throw that out the, the window to do this randomized study. Mm-hmm. So we had one child in, one child out. We had families that have been coming for three years who we had said we're committed to. Now all of a sudden saying, sorry, Take take a year or take two years off. Mm-hmm. So it was it was it was challenging. Yeah. It was challenging, and it's one of the it's one of probably five things that have been the most important things we did at Bell to um, to grow the organization. So that having those evaluation results, which no one can laugh at, right. um, was sort of a bedrock of of the growth. There, being able to show that to funders and public right. agencies. I mean, we're one mm-hmm. of two scientifically validated summer learning programs in the country. Mm-hmm. Do you see the work that you do and, and the work that your team does as um, supplementing and supporting the school day, or is it also um, replacing not, – not, I shouldn't say replacing, but – or is it also making up for the lack of quality or lack of attention that, that some kids are getting in the regular school day? Yeah, I mean, when we started, when we started Bell, we fundamentally – did not believe the public education system cared about black and brown children. So we built, we built it to do what we knew the schools uh, were not committed to doing. And I think, you know, over time, uh, it was the Tobin School, in fact, where it was one of the first schools where I was like, wow, you have a lot of teachers of color. You had an amazing principal. She was amazing, Janet Short. And you had families somewhat involved. 
and the children weren't doing that well. And so it, that was the first time it flipped my – a little bit moved my opinion of schools don't really care about mm-hmm. our kids because these teachers, I mean, they worked extra – Extra, extra hours, never, I mean, always going the extra mile. Kids love their team. And so it was the first time I was like, wow, well, then maybe this is a little more complex than just the teachers don't care and the bureaucrats don't care. Uh, Maybe this issue is a little bit deeper than that. And so that was the first time. And I think after that little shakeup with uh, the Tobin School, uh, we then started to say, how do we partner better with schools? And we know that there are some schools that, and school districts that are completely dysfunctional, um, horribly managed, um, and will never educate our kids. And so we know how to operate independent, but we mm-hmm. actually prefer to work collaboratively, whether it's at the district level or at the school level, because we know that there are tons of um, hardworking teachers who really love the children the same way that we do and administrators. And so uh, our, our, I guess our opinion became a little bit more nuanced just based on ex- experience. But originally we were, we were starting out saying this country will never educate children of color to high levels of standard. They don't have an interest in doing it. They're not committed to doing it. And um, quite frankly today I still believe that at a deep level. Mm-hmm. The country is largely driven, in my opinion, uh, by Wall Street. Uh, we don't need to have um, unskilled workers anymore because of this thing called globalization, which is really just a redistribution of, of wealth. Um, but it's largely driven by you know corporate greed. At least in the seventies, you know there was a pride growing up in my household. There was a pride. You buy American, mm-hmm. right? right? And now it's the now we've kind of softened it with this globalization thing. And you know there it's kind of no, hard to do that these days. Kind of hard. Yeah, to it's, do that these days. <laughs> it's very challenging to do that. But I'm like, so if you want to wear. Clothes or, <laughs> or anything else, eat food. <laughs> so, so there's been that change, but I'm like, yeah. whoa, it's um. But I know that we don't need, we still don't really need most children to be educated to high levels for um, our economy to work. And so, if you believe that our economy is the large driver of the educational quality and the, and the educational priorities, then you'd say, well, gosh, if that's the case, and a country that's becoming more and more of color, uh, where are we headed? So, but what about the the school that you mentioned, um, the Tobin School? You said that's correct. So you, you you became familiar with this school where the the principal and the teachers were all, um, you know, working really hard to yeah. support these kids, and were connected to the kids, reflected the the population of the kids, the community yeah. of the kids, um, and the, and you said the kids were still struggling. Yeah, and so that gave you pause. Um, so what did you? What did you take from that? I mean, you said that you you wanted to partner more with schools, and maybe it was a little bit unsettling to see that the this situation which you had been maybe thinking should exist that there is, schools should be more like this, and yeah. you find one that's more like that, and the kids are still struggling. So what what do we what is what did you learn from that, or what did you what did you take from that? Well, th- there were a lot of things I, I took from it, and clearly, you know, these issues are very complex. You know, how schools are funded. Uh, how teachers uh, are compensated, who gets to stay in the classroom, who, who doesn't, um, the factors of poverty and the, the impacts of, of housing changes and blah, blah, blah. So this, this is a complex issue. But one of the things I absolutely took from it, which is ironic that it took me uh, 18 years to get here, is we actually have to start younger, right? Because everybody's like, oh, you know, Bell should go serve middle school and mm-hmm. Bell should serve high school and Bell should start its own schools. And I was like, uh-uh. I was like, if I do anything, it would actually be starting with younger children and partnering with parents and supporting mm-hmm. parents in 
their critical role as their child's first teacher. Because a lot of the data now that we know is that 35% of kids are, sh- are showing up to kindergarten significantly below, like a year to two below grade level. And so, so wait, 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 before, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no. How do you show up to kindergarten below grade level? Right. Like, I mean, what, what, is it, what does it mean to be below grade level when it, you haven't started school? So specifically, you're supposed to know 20 or more letters of the alphabet when you start kindergarten. Okay. Our kids know okay. five to seven. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to know that a, a book um, reads from left to right. A lot of our kids show up, don't know that a book reads left to wow. right. A lot of our kids don't know that you hold the spine of the book down the left side, mm-hmm. right? You're supposed to before, this is before the Common Core Standards, you're supposed to show up to kindergarten knowing how to count from one uh, to ten. Mm-hmm. Now with the Common Core Standards, you're supposed to know how to count to a hundred. That's assumed by knowledge by kindergarten. So when you show up at kindergarten with the Common Core Standards, you're supposed to be able to count to a hundred. Okay, note to self, Rosie, we have more work to do. <laughs> My daughter starts pre K next year, so we got a whole year, but she's doing pretty well at twenty. She's doing well. You, All right, but... awesome, awesome, awesome. So she's off. She's off. She'll meet today's. She'll exceed today's standard by a ton. So that's good. But these are the types of specific things where you say, well, what does it mean to be? below grade level these yeah. are expectations that you show up with this set of skills mm-hmm. and our children are literally showing up and any casey study said about 12 to 14 months below uh where they should so i'm sitting here in in the conference room of, of your office at reach out and read and i'm looking at these pictures on the walls of very young children um with reading books and sitting with uh their pediatrician and reading right. books and these are um two-year-olds three-year-olds four-year-olds um, sitting with their parents and, and reading books, looking at pictures. Um, so uh, is this what led you to this position here at Reach Out and Read? Maybe maybe you could say a little bit about what Reach Out and Read does. And I know we're skipping a chapter That's here. Okay. maybe, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it, it, what you're saying leads me so directly to, to these pictures on the walls here of these beautiful children That's um, right. <laughs> read, reading books, you know, looking very happy and proud to be reading the books. Um, and this is what you're surrounded with now in your, in your work environment. So That's how, right. is, is that what led you here? In part. I mean, when we started Bell, we were called Bell Foundation mm-hmm. because we were going to raise a million dollars from our classmates in law school. And we were going to give it to three types of programs. One that was after school. Another that was a college scholarship called the Charles Ogletree Scholarship Fund, a mentor of all of us. And the other was for child care. So high quality okay. child care programs. Uh-huh. So I think we had that seed always in there. Um, but when this opportunity opened up, I, I uh, left Bell uh, probably, what, two years ago now. When this opportunity opened up and they came and said, would you be interested in being the CEO of Reach Out and Read? I was like, this is ingenious mm. because you're leveraging the healthcare system. You're leveraging the fact that pediatricians for many are the first and most trusted advisor, you know, professional advisor. So if some pediatrician says, this will be good for your child's health, people generally will do it. Um, and it's low cost and highly scalable. So that's really when this when they came. I mean, three point nine million children, twenty seven thousand pediatricians, forty seven hundred hospitals and health clinics around the U.S. Uh, use the Reach Out and Read program. I was like, wow. So what this is could it? What does it do exactly? What is Reach Out and Read? Sure. So it's the program does does three things. One is when you come in for your well child visit, starting at six months, mm-hmm. so six months, nine months, all the way up to age five, the pediatrician hands you starts the visit by handing you a book your child. Mm-hmm. And the book is used as a developmental surveillance tool, and I can talk more about that. The second thing the pediatrician does is then model effective reading practices. So some parents don't know 
pull your child right up on your lap, mm-hmm. right? And read the book that way. Not, not next to you, but on your lap because that makes a difference from the emotional connection. And this is how you do didactic reading. You ask, can you see the monkey? What, that, what face? What, why is that baby crying, do you think? You're right. That, that's interactive. It builds vocabulary, builds the thinking skill of children. So they model that for mm-hmm. the, uh, the family. And then as a result of this advice, our 14 independent studies say our parents now are four times more likely – to go home and start reading, and it becomes one of the fun the fun activities for our families. And so that's the model. Very, very simple, but it's coming from a trusted source, and, our, and obviously our families now know the importance of reading and then have a brand-new age and language-appropriate book. Um, and by the time the children's oh. five, they have 10 brand-new mm-hmm. books for their, for their home. So you, you said a phrase earlier that I've never heard before, and i, I got to get you to define it. So <laughs> developmental surveillance? Yes, yes, a- yes. <laughs> so developmental surveillance. At every well-child checkup, uh-huh. there's things a six-month-old should be doing. Uh-huh. There's things a nine-month-old, and pediatricians know that. And they have, that's what the visit is for, to assess how a child is developing. So they'll use the book, for instance. Does a six-month-old have the pincer grasp to turn the page? Mm-hmm. Is a one-year-old pointing? Okay. If they're not pointing, well, that so may it's be not a, just about reading. It's, oh no, it's also about motor skill development. That's right. And right. So that might be a developmental delay if mm-hmm. a if a one year old isn't read is a two year old speaking in sentences. Mm-hmm. If I say, "Can you find the the first letter of your name on the cover?" and what what color is that? You know. So they're really watching that development, but they're also watching the parent child interaction. Mm-hmm. So when the six month old does the natural thing, pulls the book towards his or her mouth, if the parent pulls it away, the pediatrician says, no, 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 that means your child loves reading. They love books. That's exactly what a six month old should do. So it really, that's part of the, that's a part of a checklist they have to go through anyways, but <laughs> it's an interactive way to yeah. do it. I imagine some parents go home like, but the, the, my doctor's crazy. She that's said right. It's like, okay for, for my kid to eat his book. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> It's funny. It's it's a it's a great um, it's a great idea. It's a great model. It's it's funny because I um, as the father of a three year old um, and someone who's in education and youth development, one of the things I've noticed is how um, there things are different in many ways than they were when we were little. Yes, in obviously lots of different ways. But one of the ways that they're different is that. Um, these days, everything is trying to be enriched with something. So, if you whether you, the food you buy, it's yeah. it's it's not just the food; it's enriched with certain <laughs> vitamins, or yeah. um, or the playground. It's you know it's got ABCs <laughs> and numbers and yeah. stuff on the play structure, yeah. or the TV program, or whatever it is. It's always like um, there's teaching trying to happen. Yes. And to, to be honest, I'm often annoyed by it because I feel like a lot of times it's. Um, it's not developmentally appropriate. They're trying to do something that doesn't make any sense for that age level right. or it's um, superficial mm-hmm. and you know, that there are some things you should just be able to enjoy for the sake of doing it. That, That's that, right. That the, the, the work of kids is play and that it doesn't need to be, they don't need to be um, pestered every moment yes. with the ABCs of the one, two, threes. Yeah. But on the other hand, the, um, the statistics that you said about kids entering kindergarten, not knowing, um, you know, which way to hold a book or whatever yeah. that that's, really scary to to think about not not so much because of the um the the job that the kindergarten teacher has in front of them there's that aspect of it but it's also um it's so sad when you think about kids that young not having books around them i mean you know we we read my daughter probably looks at or reads 10 books a day you know and and her favorite place to go is the library and i'm not bragging i'm saying that that's like natural and normal it's we're not doing it so that she'll have 
um, you know, 20 letters by the time right, she enters right, kindergarten. Right. But that's certain to happen. I mean, she, you know, she's already singing the ABCs right. and doing all those things, not because we try to teach her, just because they're, we read. You're right. That's so right. A, a, a strategy like that where the pediatrician is giving out books and, and doing the modeling and stuff, it's very targeted. Mm-hmm. It's very specific and it's targeted and it's developmentally appropriate and all right. that rather than being this sort of barrage of letters and numbers that that's we're trying to surround exactly right. kids with. I've noticed a, a, a consistent theme in the programs that you have founded is – Utilizing credential teachers as as a large part of the workforce, not yes. entirely, yep. but a large part of the workforce. You mentioned the model at Bell is credential teachers paired yep. with teaching assistants. Yep, summer advantage. Um, summer advantage yep. is, is credential teachers, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, I'm wondering. Uh, that was obviously a conscious choice. Yes, and I, I have I have different challenges that, <laughs> that that raises for me around in in the field. But I'm just wondering, you know, what was that what was that choice about? Or what is that choice? Because it's an ongoing, really, it's an ongoing approach, really, for you. You know, uh, I've always had the greatest respect for for teachers, for educators, and we knew that while we brought as young law students the mentoring, the passion, the relationship, um, and many other things, um, we weren't educators. And teaching a child how to read is a skill. Uh, it doesn't just happen; it is a skill, and it's a learned art. And so we said, let's go and find the best. And, and you know, one thing that we do at, at Summer Advantage is, and we did it at Bell, is w- while the teachers are certified, we get to hire them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so they're not coming because they're, they're most senior, and they're not coming to, which is the case in some summer school. I had a teacher come, uh, come through the interview and say, oh, I thought I was just going to get to read the paper and, uh, you know, let the kids do what they want. And I was Should like, that an interview? Yes. <laughs> She, she was walked. That, she, she was not really <laughs> ambitious to have that job. No, she, wasn't she was. Like it was on her way out. It was yeah. on her way out. She was like, "No, no, I can't stay around for this. I thought I was going to be get to read the paper." This but, is interview to work. Yes, oh, I know. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that but that was her yeah. summer school. That was what summer school was like. Right. 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 And so and so you know our notion is let's get the best educators who believe who know their content who believe in the children in front of them, um, and let's have them paired up with a teacher's assistant who may bring more of that, not always, but may bring more of that youthfulness. They're in college. They can, as a mentor, even though they're educators, as a mentor, they can talk about what it's like to be in college and where they're going to school. And so they kind of, we're hoping that that's kind of seeps into our scholars subconscious mm-hmm. that, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I know somebody from Spelman. I know somebody from Boston college or UCLA or what have you. So, um, so yeah, we feel like if you want to run a high quality and that's why I actually don't feel like, um, People are being really authentic when they say uh, when when some of the larger nonprofits uh, say that they're really focused on academics now. I mean, I know that they are chasing money, and I know we all have to chase money, mm-hmm. but I don't think they're being authentic, and I don't know why people believe that to be authentic. Where you're going to take somebody who's a great youth worker, great enrichment, caring adult, and you're now going to say that person's an educator? Mm-hmm. They're not, and it's not it's not authentic. Mm-hmm. Not to say that young people. I mean. Marion Wright Elman is having the uh, uh, having her uh, conference down at Haley Farm. It's five thousand young people and mm-hmm. community folks who are going to go back and run freedom schools throughout right. the country, and they've shown very, very positive academic results. So you can do it, but you have to be really intentional about it, and not just slap slap on a sign that says, you know, I don't know what the sign says, but <laughs> but yeah. I don't know what the sign says either. But the you you question the the authenticity about whether those those young, those youth workers who are doing academic support should be called educators. I mean, that uh, raises the notion, well, what does it mean to be an educator? Right, right, right. right. Does it mean 
to be that you have to be a credentialed teacher in order to be an educator? Mm-hmm. No. But if you're if you're promising a movement of academic skills, mm-hmm. then and you're really committed to children, then you should get the highest quality, best positioned people to do that. In our in our country, those are teachers. Mm-hmm. So, but your programs don't only focus on the academic skill right. aspect of it. You right. also um, you want to incorporate youth development and mentoring. Oh, absolutely. Um, you, absolutely. you mentioned self esteem a couple yeah. of times. Yep. Um, do you, how do you deal with getting um, classroom teachers to shift their approach or shift their mentality, or do they have to? I mean, are you know what, one argument would be that if you're a really successful, powerful classroom teacher, you're mm-hmm. doing those things. You're doing you should be doing mentoring. You should be absolutely you know focusing on on youth development mm-hmm. anyway. How much do you try to get teachers to shift their approach? Well, I mean, you know, summer advantage. We're running a five week summer program. We're going to have a week. We have a week long training for folks, so it's all in the selection. I'm not saying our, our professional mm-hmm. learning program is good, but it's all in the training, and the program goes is over like that. So you can't coach train. I mean, you either find folks who have that in them, mm-hmm. or you you pretty much don't. Now, what I do think the one value add is I do think we create a culture that really is all scholar centered. And it's really, really, I know it's all cliche, but it really is high. If you came through our professional learning program, you'd be like, all right, this is what they're trying. I mean, they're very, we're very clear. Mm -hmm. We expect our scholars to gain over two months reading, writing, math skills. And, you know, and people jazzed up, well, can we do something to get, help them get three or four months? You know, so people understand what we're, uh, what our top priority is for for our children. And so finding teachers who have that, but then the afternoon is, Academic teachers go home, and we have enrichment teachers. So the, the TA, the college-age person, is with them the whole day, our scholars the whole day. Mm-hmm. But then you have the enrichment teachers come in who are gifted in art, music, drama, debate. You know, uh, MLS soccer was a partner. You know, so then all of a sudden you're getting a different – you're developing in a different way. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that do the academic stuff intensely and then have an opportunity to do enrichment and recreation. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And then Friday, guest speakers who say, I sat right in that chair where you sat, and look look where I am today. So mm-hmm. keep – and commend our scholars because our scholars get 15 to 30 minutes of reading homework a night. So you want to say you're working hard to get smarter during the summer. That's, that's really something commendable. And then our scholars love – I mean last summer, the absolute – last two summers, the absolute favorite activity has been the scholar-led service project where they get to look out in the world and say, you know what, I may be 5, 6, or, or 14. This is what I want to improve, and now let me go and do it. Our scholars love that. Great, great. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of the work that we do at Development Without Limits is around youth-led uh, project-based yeah. learning, service it's, learning it's like powerful. that. So yeah, it's, it's powerful. very powerful. Um, so, you know, one of my mentors is my former boss, uh, Carla Sanger at LA's Best, and mm-hmm. um, she has been under pressure at times to – uh, utilize credentialed teachers more than she does. Um, and there's a real focus on LA's best on um, having the staff be very community-based, be, be closely connected to the, mm-hmm. to the young people. Um, the, the program coordinators, the site coordinators at LA's best are, are part-time, uh, but it's sort of like, you know, part-time work, but full-time heart, you yeah. know, is, um, yeah. that's a little motto that I just made up right here. Nice. But, but um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's people who are extremely dedicated to their community, to yeah. the program, to the kids. Um, it's not because the program has been around long enough. Now there's many staff at the program who, who went through the program with awesome. young kids, awesome. um, but there's pressure to, to make the site coordinators, credential teachers, mm-hmm. or to make the staff credential teachers or to utilize credential teachers mm-hmm. more. 
Um, now that that raises issues um, around budget for one thing sure. and, and management of the program. But but putting that aside, um, they've resisted that pressure because of the importance to them as an organization to have that very tight community connection mm-hmm. and to have the program staff really reflect and be a part of the, the, the community mm-hmm. um, that the kids are coming from. So that sort of like you were saying with the guest speakers, the kids can look at the program staff and say, and see themselves. Yeah. And I don't think that always has to be, you know, uh, ethnic or racial right. mirror, right. but it, it often is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so it, it seems to me that there's a there's a set of values there that may or may not be competing values, mm-hmm. but the uh, sort of a prioritizing, you know, who you want the staff to be. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to sound cynical, but <laughs> um, <laughs> when someone says something like that, it means that's right. To be cynical. <laughs> um, I don't want to be cynical. I should say, but I feel like. I agree with you that it's in the selection of, of the teachers mm-hmm. that you pick. But for, for summer advantage in particular, in Indianapolis, there's – is it like 650 teachers or something like mm-hmm. that? Yep. 650 teachers out of several thousand teachers, yeah. I assume. In my experience um, of working with classroom teachers, given the culture of schooling and given the culture of ed school yeah. and ongoing staff development – um, it's it's difficult for many of them to shift their mentality of um, of what it means to be a teacher. Yeah. So I, I guess I want to ask you, how much do you focus on the experience that happens in the classroom? Mm-hmm. Um, how much are you focused on reforming or 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 not reforming the the process of education itself, the process of learning, the process of teaching? Mm-hmm. Let me think on this. I'd still go back to, I don't know that we're necessarily reforming it, but I do think if you put, if you find high quality educators, and there are many, and we're not geographically restricted, we can recruit from anywhere mm-hmm. throughout the state, even though we may be in you know, 14 school districts there, uh, we can recruit from public, private, charter, wherever. I think if you get great teachers, and you give them support. Uh, now, we do. The training, I mean, the training is really powerful because we want folks to understand. We're bringing in some of the best educators from around the country. Dr. Willis, you know, talks about the brain development and the importance of engagement and just mm-hmm. kind of how there's, you know, p- people either have you know, flight or fright or freeze, right? And so she talks about why it's so critical to engage and just little things you can do to make sure that, the smart kids always have the hands up. The, the, the kids who are, quote, unquote, are not doing well are always acting up or trying to hide, right? And then there's this middle group that does So there are ways that you can actually make sure everybody answers in the class, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody write down your answer, right? So it keeps you in. So they're just little t- uh, tools. Um, so it's a long way of saying I don't know if we're reforming education, but I do know that we, um, we find the right educators and give them the tools and set the culture for success. I guess what I what I what I really mean is when when you went to the Tobin school right. and you saw all these de- this dedication and still the the struggle. Yeah. Um doesn't that mean that there's something wrong with the the accepted process with the whole system of schooling if mm-hmm. if you get the most dedicated people in yeah. place who have their heart in it and who are skilled and smart and they're still 
not succeeding, yep. then doesn't that mean that it needs that something needs to happen that's more than just I shouldn't say just because it's a it's a huge effort that sh- doesn't something need to happen that's more than increasing the number of teaching hours that mm-hmm. that young people from mm-hmm. more challenging um, backgrounds experience. Yeah. Um, the short answer is it could be yes, um, but the medium answer is this, this is really, really complex. So when you go back to the fact that you know, when, at Summer Advance, we focus on growth, right? So we know our scholars are going to grow over two months. We know that our scholars are going to move from, in, in general, they start about the 31st percentile national norm to the 42nd, right? And so those children would still be failing, because the 47 means 58% of the country is doing better than them. But we're saying, no, 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 but you grew 10 percentage points in a, in a five-week program. So we have to keep that, that growth. So I just – I sometimes worry about this, this you know, kind of the standardized testing process and saying, oh, children are failing when I'm like, it's all about development. And so if children are coming significantly behind and they're making some great gains, mm-hmm. and that's what we see with the summer learning research, right? So more affluent children generally go up about a month in performance and our lower income children lose about three months over the the summertime. Mm -hmm. And so I'm saying, well, what if we just kept, keep children growing? So that may not be an answer to your question. We may need to reform the process, but I think the other, the other thing I'd say is every single organization I've been involved in absolutely sees the parent as a critical partner. Mm. And so you could say, well, no, it's, it's all about what's happening in the school. And there are clearly about a million things that need to be improved within the school buildings. But it's also about what's happening before school starts. It's what happens at the home for school-age children and obviously during the summer times. I mean that's a core yeah. core belief. So I struggle with that so much around our work with after-school and summer programs cause, or even the, the type of work that you're doing with Reach Out and Read. It, it often occurs to me that um, the programs that we work with are, are trying to – compensate for a lack of something that's happening at home, something that's not happening at home. Um, And the the Reach Out and Read program is a great example of that, although I think it's a a especially useful one because it involves the parents. Um, But in after-school programs, um, when, you know, kids are of school age or middle school, high school, Mm -hmm. we're often doing things um, that traditionally – uh, happen at home or mm-hmm. maybe should happen at home. Yeah. Um, things like help with homework, right. um, things like, uh, introducing, uh, young people to new cultural experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, even something as basic as dinner mm-hmm. is, is often happening in after school right. programs, at least in New York city. And right. I know in other cities as well. Um, so that always puts me off a little bit when I think about it in those terms. Cause it's like, wow, what does that mean? Like we're, we're trying to we're, 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 it's almost like giving up in a certain way, like just mm-hmm. saying, you know, we got this. Like you, you're, it's it's not happening in yeah. in so many homes. Yeah. Like the the parenting and the support isn't happening for for whatever reasons. As you said, you know, the challenges that that so many parents face and, and all of that. But it's almost like you know we'll, we'll just take care of it mm-hmm. within a more institutional setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I that leaves me with a sort of a dark feeling, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never been really sure what to do with that feeling. Um, is that has, is that something that's occurred to you? Um, yeah, but I mean, I think I, uh, the way I've at least rationalized it is um, the, the village approach, mm-hmm. right? So f- I don't think parents are you know, lazy, not try- just trying to. I mean, there are some, 
But the vast majority of parents are hardworking, dealing with a lot of stressors, trying right. to keep their you know, head above water so that they can take care of their, their family. And so if we can provide a support as a teammate, mm-hmm. um, but that's why all, you know, again, with Summer Advantage, there's a parental commitment. You have to come to an orientation training. People say, oh, don't make your parents do that. This is not. I'm like, no, they have to come out because they have to understand we're, we're partners mm-hmm. in this. And um, they have to sign a nightly reading log. Now, does that mean they sat with their child for 15 or 20 minutes? Not necessarily. Does that mean they asked their child? But at least it builds these are habits you should be doing. You should right. be asking about, well, what did you learn today? And how was class? And what field trip are you going on? Et cetera, et cetera. And so we try to, you know, and we also try to change the dynamic with families on the first two days of the program. We call every single parent, our teachers call every single one of their, their classrooms um, uh, students and say, oh, it's so great to have her on the program. You know, and the parents are like, what did Earl do? Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's the general interaction. And we're, so we're saying, no, let's build trust. Let's right. build trust because we are partners in this. Earl didn't do anything. I wanted to call and say, it's great to have him in. And could you tell me what types of book he likes? And when we do write his workshop, what does he like to write about so I can use those as prompts? So that kind of says we're part, we respect you mm-hmm. uh, and you're, you have to respect us. And it's fair to expect that you're going to come out to a program that provides five weeks of child care, five weeks of academics, five weeks of meals. Right. It's fair to expect you to come out to a one-hour orientation sure. and sign a nightly reading log saying that you're, you're still in it. I love that idea of the call, the call home um, to just say welcome and thank you That's and everything. Right. I mean, I, it's, it's such an unusual thing to get a call um, to a parent. Yeah. For for something positive. That's right. That way. That's exactly right. Never got calls for, <laughs> I got a couple of calls, but it wasn't for anything positive. It's it's a really it's a nice idea to open up the pathways of communication too, so that if there are challenges down the road, that's exactly that there's right. been some relationship established. That's it's exactly not just, right. Uh, this you know sort of faceless person at the other end of the phone yep. calling to make trouble. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. You and I had a brief conversation. Um, a couple of months ago, as part of the the Bridge Conference's National Advisory Committee, yes, one of these conference calls that we have, and and we'll actually um, talk a little bit about the Bridge Conference in a moment too. Um, but you, you and I both serve on the National Advisory Committee for the Bridge Conference of Schools at Washington, and the the committee was sort of um, brainstorming about the the focus of the conference and how how much focus should be on different issues and different yes. priorities. And one thing, you know, one issue that that was raised was the, you know, uh, sessions about uh, measuring outcomes and mm-hmm. the importance of outcomes. Yes. And and I had raised the point that you know some t- that there seems to be an overabundance of emphasis on outcomes lately. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and you had asked, well, what else? Like, how else do we? I can't remember exactly what you asked mm-hmm. actually, but you sort of pushed back a little bit and said, well, what else are we supposed to do? Like, mm-hmm. if we, you know, we we obviously we have to focus on outcomes. Yeah. Um. And, you know, my concern about it was it wasn't so much that I – I obviously want to focus on outcomes. I just don't want to focus as much as I feel like we're being made to focus on measuring outcomes. Right, so right. Huh. big distinction there for sure because yeah. I think we're all focused on on outcomes in terms of we want to have an impact on right. young people and communities. And that's the that's the reason that we do this work. Yeah. Um, but in, in my view, in recent years, there's been um, a whole lot of – money and thought and time put into how to measure outcomes. And I always feel like if all of that brain power and time and funding could Hmm. go into how to serve young people in communities to better reach the outcomes we're trying to reach, that we would all be better well served. Yeah. Um, And, 
given that you know you had established at Bell that evaluation was so important mm-hmm. for especially for being able to grow mm-hmm. to be able to to prove to the world that this has an impact That's right and i you know there's no from my point of view there there's no knocking that like it's it's obvious as to how that w- served the organization well and therefore served the the, the communities that you serve yeah. well by being able to grow and get support um but i wonder if if maybe we've all gone too, we're all going too far in that direction, um, and and how what you what you think about that? Well, so I have, I have a few different thoughts. I mean, one is I don't think a lot of nonprofits actually are committed to outcomes. To and outcomes or to measuring outcomes? To outcomes. To outcomes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that if you look at a lot of groups, they'll tell you the story of the child's life they saved, and I'm sure they did, and I'm glad they did. Um, but if you kind of really dig a little deeper, you're like, huh? But we have to be more than just a safe place and maybe a a snack or a healthy meal. And maybe if we're being really honest, maybe a caring adult, right? Um, so I've always struggled with the field because I'm like, okay, summer advantage, Bell, we do academic outcome, reach out and read. That's what we're focused on. But tell tell me something. Tell me mm-hmm. some, what is the outcome other than maybe attendance, which isn't is, is drop in in some cases, or what is the outcome that you're aspiring to? And if you tell me and then you say, and we're, we're looking at this, then I'll say, great, because I agree with you 100%. We don't need just academics, and kids don't need just academics. They need sure. all this stuff. But it seems like as a field, we've kind of been afraid to, to say anything mm-hmm. of – this is what we. This is the value that we add. And I know human development isn't a perfect straight line. I know there are things that people said to me when I was six that I still think about. They still mm-hmm. impact me, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's an outcome. It's affected my beliefs. Right. Um, and you wouldn't have seen that if you measured it when I was six. So I, I get that. But but we have to stand on something. And I worry that you know, especially with you know, and I know I won't. You know, I know President Bush, you know, he kind of uh, blasted us with the 21st century and saying, hey, there's inconsistent. But the truth of the matter is there's a billion dollars flowing to do something for kids. And if we care about kids, then we should say if you're committed to doing something and you do it well, then you should get more funding. And if you're not committed to doing anything and you do it or you do it poorly, you should not receive funding. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think that's in the best interest of children and families. So I'm I'm struggling with the field that doesn't seem to want to hold itself to any real outcome. And attendance isn't an outcome. It is, but it's not really an outcome. It's interesting that you say that, that, that you feel like most organizations are not focused on outcomes. Cause I, um, I hear so much talk about outcomes. Yes. And it, every RFP... Um, request for proposals, you know, asks you to state out your outcomes and many of them you need to show your logic model and do all the, which is all outcomes based. Um, And so it may be that it's just, you know, my little world is sort of saturated with that. But if you look at 21st century community learning centers in general, all of that, all of those kinds of funding streams, they certainly at least ask you in your proposals and in your, you know, sort of description of your program to Mm -hmm. to talk about outcomes. But you're saying that the, when you really dig a little deeper, that the programs themselves are not focused enough. I think the marketing departments, the development departments, articulate outcomes because that's what you have to do to raise money. Mm-hmm. I think real honest conversations about what are the outcomes that are happening, I think we'd find that, I don't know, 80, 
90% of folks aren't looking at the outcomes, don't take that data. I mean, even if you don't want to share it, because I understand you got to raise money, right, to stay alive. So even if you don't want to share it externally, are you at least having honest conversations internally that say, this isn't what we want it to be, and all that splash that we have to do out there, let's have an honest, behind-closed-doors conversation as a leadership team and Mm -hmm. figure out how we actually make the gap between this and that tighter. I'll be the first one to say, you know, reach out and read, right? 14 independent studies. Very few organizations have one. We have 14. And the studies prove our parents are four times more likely to read regularly to their children, and our children show up with larger vocabularies, greater reading comprehension skills, and a six-month developmental edge. If you think I'm so foolish as to believe that 27,000 pediatricians 27,000 pediatricians are implementing this program in the same way, then I would have to be the dumbest person in Boston, right? And maybe in the country. I don't. We have a fidelity issue. Mm -hmm. And so if you can't honestly say we have a fidelity issue, if you can't say that, then you can't address it. And so you know, part of our conversation here is, all right, what do we do? What are the levers that we can control around quality? Because our program happens in an exam room behind a closed exam. So what are the things that we can do to make sure that the fidelity of our program matches the sales pitch of our program? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we're doing. But I know a lot of organizations don't do that. And I look at their CEOs and I listen to them and they will tell you up and down that they're blah, 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 and they're just lying. And they're not being honest and they're not being fair to our kids. It's uh, refreshing to me to hear you say that because I, I – um, in part of my work, I do – my team does a lot of site visits to a lot of different programs around the country. Yeah. And um, we also you know, work a fair amount with the um, public agencies in, in Washington, D.C. or New York or California with, who are funding these programs or, as you said, the, the executive-level leadership of, of organizations who um, are at conferences and meetings and they're all describing their program model and how um, – how amazing it is, but then when you go to the program itself, what you see with your own eyes, usually what it is is it's people struggling. Yeah. And, and that can be – so I don't want to say it like what you see is horrible, but you see it's, it's, a, it's messy work. Mm-hmm. I mean, and especially when you talk about taking a developmental approach mm-hmm. um, that's, or taking a more experiential project-based learning approach, like you said, the, the scholar-led service projects. Yeah. You're going to have kids lead something. It's not going to fall into – perfect categories mm-hmm. it's not necessarily going to be neat it might be loud yeah. it might be messy um so you know knowing that going in but even so um you know that we visit a lot of programs and the actual practice of the programs doesn't necessarily match up to the rhetoric and um for me that often is a problem of the rhetoric more than it is of the program right. Um, and the issue that you said of fidelity may or may not be an issue depending on what your, the, the culture of your organization is, mm-hmm. right? So there are some organizations where they really want each site to really develop their own yeah. identity and do things their way. And there are other organizations that have a particular model and they want the, the different sites or different practitioners um, to, to adhere to that model somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- that there's a disconnect between what we hear about and what's actually going on. Yes. And that that's exactly the kind of um, the kind of struggle, the kind of challenge that we're trying to shed light on, that I'm trying to shed light on with, with Please Speak Freely and, and other uh, Development Without Limits programs where we're trying to say, you know, let's shed light on this. Let's talk about That's it. Right. Um, you know, that it's a struggle, but it's a good struggle mm-hmm. because all, all change and all progress involves struggle. Mm-hmm. So let's, but, but let's be honest about that That's struggle. Right. That's right. 
You mentioned, you know, people have said, well, should Bell start a school? Should Bell do this? Mm -hmm. Should Bell do that? Um, it's, it's one thing that was going through my mind as you were talking about the need to support young people that, that get the support they're not necessarily getting at home or getting in the, in the classroom. Is it, wouldn't the best way to do that be to, start to, be to actually run a school rather right. than run sort of supplemental programs? Right. Um, some could say yes, but I, you know, we looked at it once and my boy said, well, you start one. I said, well, there's something for me to sit, to know that there are millions of children in need. And so running a school for 500 children, I know that that would not feel like it was enough. Mm. And so you might say, well, deeper impact, longer impact, and you could make all those. I just know me, that wouldn't feel like I had done enough. And so when I said, well, if we're talking about building a network of schools, then that's an interesting conversation. And then you know, folks were like, well, all right, why don't you do the first one for five years? And then do and I was like, uh, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> uh-uh. So, so, you know, uh, obviously Kip has uh, emerged since then and, and others have emerged and, and some have been good and some have not been. But um, at some point, you know, we were talking with Stanford Children um, last week. I want to start a grassroots movement that is uh, centered with families, parents at the center of it. Mm. And so I don't yet know the pathway, but that's that's where I'm headed. Okay. Well, you heard it here first. I'm pleased to speak <laughs> freely. Earl next big venture. It's got something to do with parents and families. So as I said earlier, uh, you and I are both um, working with Schools at Washington Bridge, yes. Bridge Conference. Um, and uh, this episode and a couple of other episodes of Please Speak Freely are sponsored by um, the Bridge Conference. And, we'll, and I'll be there at the Bridge Conference as part of the National Advisory Committee and as a presenter, but also um, interviewing um, a couple of people for Please Speak it's Freely. Great. I'm That's also going to do some, um, some s- shorter sort of in-the-conference interviews to, get, mm-hmm. to sort of capture the, the spirit mm-hmm. and the voice of the conference itself. Um, and you know, I'm, I know you've presented at the Bridge Conference in the past, and you'll, yes. be, you'll definitely be attending this year, right? Yes. Um, and I'm just, you know, I, I guess I want to ask you, you know, how you choose to affiliate yourself with the Bridge Conference. There's a lot mm-hmm. of conferences. There's, I'm sure, you get a lot of demands for your time and requests yeah. for your time. Um, and I'm wondering what what draws you to the Bridge Conference. You know, largely Zach. You know, um, his passion and energy is what recruited me to go out there and, and present. Um, and just to, to be in the room and, you know, uh, summer advantage Midwest, uh, reach out and read in all 50 States. Bell was mostly East coast. Right. And so to, uh, you know, see the work that they're doing, the commitment and the effort and to be connected in that way, um, uh, geographically felt like, wow, this is, it's pretty good to know that there are so many people working, which, I, which you know intellectually, but to be connected geographically, um, um, even though, though lightly through this conference. So that's part of it. And then just the, the, the individuals that I met at the conference, uh, there's just a lot of really, really great educators and a lot of individuals who are committed to doing the right thing for children. And so I'm always committed to being part of communities where you have people like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Zach Wilson um, specifically. Zach's the uh, manager of the Bridge Conference and the sort of visionary yes. of the Bridge Conference. And you and I both work closely with him. Um, I was talking with Alexis Menton of Asia Society, who's also on the National Committee with us. And um, we, were, we were talking about what makes the Bridge Conference special. Yeah. And you mentioned Zach. Um, and, I, you know, to me, what Zach does is he really – he puts heart and soul into the conference. Yeah, and, he really and he does. really – 
crafts each experience of the conference mm-hmm. um, as opposed to uh, many conferences which simply issue a call for p- proposals and right. then pick a whole bunch of sessions, mm-hmm. get keynote speakers that they think will be names that will draw people. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, even if it's, you know, sometimes it's a actor or someone that <laughs> has <laughs> little connection to after school. Sometimes they do have a personal connection. Yep. Um, but Zach seems to really put that kind of craftsmanship and th- creative thought into yeah. the conference. Um, and you said that his his passion for it really really drew you to it yes um is there something is there a lesson there for other conferences to learn is there a lesson there for those of us who work to help bring people together to improve the practice to improve their their work well i mean i think you know you said it i mean a that zach is one incredibly thoughtful b that he really believes that this is a vehicle that will help each and every provider improve their services. You know, that everybody's going to come home with one, two, three, or four nuggets that they can implement that will better serve. Like he really believes that. And so I think that's one key lesson because I know some people have a conference because that's kind of what you're supposed to do if you're an intermediary, you have conferences. Um, this, the second part, you know, uh, which, which you and I talk, spoke about before is like I love the notion of just doing things differently. So when you say, hey, having a, a, a friendly but a spirited debate on a real issue and going deep as opposed to having five people say the exact same thing um, but in a different way and then plug their organizations like i love you mean a panel <laughs> exactly a panel <laughs> that's right <laughs> i mean i love i love that idea and i think zach's the type of person uh and school of washington is a type of organization that would be willing to do something that's just a little bit different even you're right. doing the interviews right on you know live on the at the uh conference they're just willing to do that and so it's 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 cool to be part of that uh community great and the bridge conference uh, if you don't recall, is in Seattle, Washington, October 17th and 18th. Um, this episode is Please Speak Freely, sponsored by the Bridge Conference, and we're really happy to be affiliated with them and uh, to be able to help them out. Earl Phelan will be there at the conference. I'll be there at the conference um, and, and many other great speakers and, um, and participants. I mean, you mentioned just the, all the great people you meet at that conference. Yeah. It's just it's amazing to me. It kind of made me feel like, should I move to the Northwest? Because <laughs> um, it's just it's interesting because I wonder how much of it is the culture that's created by Zach mm-hmm. and the rest of the team mm-hmm. that allows people to, to have that kind of spirit right. that they bring to right. it, that allows them to be thoughtful, that's it, that, that lets them know, like, this is somewhere where you can step up and say something. And then, then you, you, you feel like you met all these great educators. That's right. And if those, that same group of people would have been in a situation that was more restrictive or just not as engaging, you might not have thought, Oh, what great educators. Yeah, that's you know, right. So that's exactly how much right. Of it is the people and how much yeah, it is the, that's the right. culture. I'm sure it's a combination. Um, well, you know, I want to really thank you for taking the time to talk to no, me. My it's pleasure. Been a, my it's pleasure. been a great conversation. Um, you know, I've um, been aware of your work for, for quite some time and am happy to be able to, um, to now work with you and have this conversation with you. And, you know, I'm sure our paths will cross again. Thanks for being on Please Speak Freely. No, it's a pleasure to be here. All right, thanks. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Please Speak Freely. If you want to get more information about Earl, you can go to his website at earlmphalen.com. That's E-A-R-L-M-P-H-A-L-E-N.com. For more information about Development Without Limits, go to developmentwithoutlimits.org. Thanks once again for joining us for this second episode of Please Speak Freely. The next episode is a conversation with Dr. Pedro Naguera of New York University. 
had a real interesting conversation with Dr. Naguera and can't wait for you to hear it. So tune in next time to Please Speak Freely. Mm-hmm.